a little bit about his <laughs> wife or wives and their relationship and influence on him. Yes, yes, and they're both significant, and he loves them both, and they both died tragically. And they both, and the deaths of both of them devastated him. When he accepted the appointment, now he went back, going back to the earlier part of our discussion, when he went to Europe on the first trip, he came back, he taught for seven years, and when he was on the Bowdoin campus, he married a young woman from Portland, Mary Storr Porter, who was the daughter of a probate judge. They families knew each other. And he was deliriously happy. They were a wonderful couple. She was a fragile young woman. She was very happy being the wife of a, of a Bowdoin professor. But his ambitions were boundless. He came back from Europe. He had, he had, he had actually met the, moved amongst the diplomatic community in Spain. We have self, uh, self portraits of him dressed in native garb. He, 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 he had actually been active on the world stage. And now he was up in Maine. I mean, I went to college in Maine myself. And it's a wonderful state, but you imagine what it was like 200 years ago. He said, I'm not dead in Maine, I'm buried in Maine. And that is what he said. And he really was eager to take his talents and perform on a larger, wider stage. And that opportunity came when George Tickner at Harvard, through a variety of reasons, was decided to take early retirement. And he handpicked Longfellow to succeed him as the Smith Professor of Languages at Harvard. And Henry took it in an instant, but the same the same uh, deal applied. He had to return to Europe and learn more languages or master more languages. And this time, his young wife came with him. Uh, we don't know when she conceived, whether she was pregnant or not when they left. I don't know. Uh, but she ha- had a miscarriage in Holland. And after 54 or so agonizing days, she died. He was devastated. And I think when you read one of his poems, uh, footsteps of angels, where this he has this visitation from uh, his first wife. She comes and she sits with him at the night, and she lays his her gentle hand in his, and with and she has soft rebukes, soft rebukes. What is she rebuking him for? You know, you wonder. Does he feel a little bit of grief about it? Because she did not want to make the trip. She supported his ambitions, but she went with him. And whether or not he felt any responsibility for that, I don't know. But it, it devastated him. Then, but he continued with his work. He continued to study. He mastered the German. That was the goal. You have to master the German. That's what the techno wanted him to do. And he decides to take, he spends the winter in Heidelberg, and then he goes on an overland trip. And in Switzerland, lo and behold, he meets a group of Americans, very wealthy Americans, the Appleton family from Beacon Hill. Nathan Appleton is a, is a, Be- a Beacon Hill magnate. He's the f- founder of Lowell, Massachusetts, which was the first industrial textile city in North America. I happen to have been born there and brought up there. And it's no longer a big textile city, but he was the founder of it. And he was exceedingly wealthy. And through a variety, they were grieving. They had and consumption, of course, afflicted everyone in the 19th century. He had lost his wife. They had lost a brother. And he had two older, two young daughters. He decided to bring them on a grand tour of Europe. And they met in Switzerland. And what happened, what, what ensued was a seven-year courtship. When Henry met her, she was <clears throat> exquisitely tutored for, by private tutors. These, these, we're talking about the 1820s, 1830s now. You know, education, secondary education at a high level was really the exclusive province of men, not young women, unless you were fabulously wealthy. Then you could afford magnificent tutors, as she had. 
Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, John uh, George Barrel Emerson, Francis Lieber, the scholar. Uh, uh, she learned art from Francis Grader, music, and she embraced knowledge. She was brilliant. And when the first, uh, the first <clears throat> impression Longfellow has of Fanny Appleton, and she's nineteen when he meets her, and he's twenty-eight or whatever. He says she's not a she's not a woman of intelligence. She's a woman of genius. He says, and she's multilingual like himself. She's 18 or 19, whatever. She's 19 years old. And together, they, and, oh, Nathan Appleton, meanwhile, invites Longfellow to travel with them for a fortnight. So he travels with them and they travel in these, uh, these magnificent carriages through the countryside and they get to know each other. There's no great epiphany that you can spot, but clearly they are taking the measure of each other's intellects, their minds. And I could, you can see Fanny really measuring him you know, I mean, she and she has she has a knowledge of who he is. She writes in her journal. Professor Longfellow sends up his card. I hope he doesn't pop in on us, though. I did read his Outremere, so she knows his first book. You know, that's something. Nineteen-year-old uh, young woman. She knows the first book, and they, he's the poet. She thinks he's an old man until she meets him. He's not an old man. He's she's an, he's either he's either uh, he's not so old after all, or else the son of the poet. She writes in her journal. Anyway, they get back to Boston. He is dazzled. They at one point they're they're riding along, and, and Longfellow is now this uh, authority in multiple languages, and he's translating works from the German. And there's a ballad by this German uh, poet Uland, and together they stand. It's a long ballad. I have a photograph of it in the book. <clears throat> she translates it better than he does, and he acknowledges it. He said she, the best verses are hers, are Fanny Appleton's. And later she actually writes it out in longhand in her hand. I have a copy of it, a photograph of it. And she gives herself top billing, translated by Fanny Appleton and Henry Longfellow. And it's, and he, and Henry uses her translation in his, in his book of German poetry. He's, he's that impressed by this young woman of this dazzling intellect. You know, people have said, oh, he married, he sought her out because of her position and her, you know, uh, I'm sure that factored into it at some remove, but everyone agrees. What he, he really valued above everything else was intellect. And here was a woman who actually met him uh, uh, equally and evenly uh, and uh, was a total match for him. And you, and, and when they became a couple, she, they read though the, the highlight of every day together as, as they read several hours at, a day at night to each other, generally Fanny reading to him because uh, his first impression of her is of her musical voice. He has this ear for music and for melody. And he says the magical, like a whisper from heaven, he describes it. And then she reads and they read. She, she, she was reading Hebrew history to him, by the way. I was looking that up. I hadn't realized that because they read every night. They had 12,000 books in the house and they read their books. Uh, she's a remarkable person and, and she, and she actually, she's very self-effacing. She is a creative influence. Uh, she clearly and suggested a couple of poems that he wrote, gave him the ideas for, uh, the arsenal at Springfield is one in particular on their, what, their wedding journey, their honeymoon. They visit this arsenal in Springfield, Massachusetts, where these thousands of weapons are stacked and it suggests to her an, an organ upon which death can play its tune. And she really urges her husband, she was a lifelong pacifist, to write what she called a peace poem. 
and use and use as the central image these muskets as this organ, a death's organ. And he writes this poem, The Arsenal of Springfield, which becomes a very well a, a rallying cry for the anti-war movement. And then when they're married, uh, she 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 actually sees herself. She says, if he loses, he never he really never stopped working, but there are times when he's not working as aggressively as he should. And she writes to her, her mother-in-law, Henry's mother. She said, I assure you, I am a, I am a fairly active spur upon his Pegasus. This is the role she sees. She's a spur upon his Pegasus. And she says, and I want him to, to stick, to use the word stick, but to <clears throat> continue to pay attention to his holy mission, the mission of poet. And she, she, he showed her everything they wrote when he was work, when they, he was working on that two volume, uh, anthology of European poetry I mentioned. She helped him with the translations. She helped write the prefaces. I've looked at the uh, photographs of <clears throat> the surviving manuscript. You see annotations in her hand and her, she has a very distinctive hand. She helped with the translations. She helped with the prefaces and throughout his career for 18 years is uninterrupted productivity. It just doesn't stop. These are the years of his greatest poems. It just doesn't stop. The Song of Hiawatha, 1850, uh, that's a, uh, 1855. Uh, the Evangeline is a couple of years after that. Then you have uh, uh, The Courtship of Miles Standish, the great poem, Paul Revere's Ride, uh, The Building of the Ship. I mean, one after the other, uh, extraordinary works that issue forth during this, this 18 years of, of uninterrupted creativity. And I believe she is a significant uh, component of that. So it was quite extraordinary. And he was deliriously happy. She was happy. They had five children. Uh, they 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 uh, hosted people. I mean, having small dinners with the Longfellows became kind of a salon. There were small dinner parties, about eight people. And if you were anybody who wanted to be invited to dinner with the Longfellows. What clinched it after seven years of courtship? What clinched it for her? It took them... Seven years. Well, that's, uh, you know, well, that's, that, that's been one of the great mysteries. Um, you know, she, she wasn't really ready to be married right away. And, uh, I guess she was, she was looking for whatever, you know, she doesn't really tell us, but I, I suggest a variety of things. She had a mentor, Catherine Mariah Sedgwick, who was a very prominent writer. She called her her dear aunt Kitty. I discovered some letters and she hadn't been. Found you quoted before, <clears throat> pardon me, in the Massachusetts Historical Society, letters from one letter in particular from Fanny to Sedgwick. All of her correspondence mostly is in the Longfellows. This happened to be in Mass Historical, and the Sedgwick letters to Fanny are there. And there, so there's, there's a uh, it's after the death of her mother when she was 13, she turned to this very well known writer who happened to be a, a relative. She called her her odd kitty, but she was a cousin. And Sedgwick um, mentored her, advised her. And there's one letter, and she said, it's not even dated. She says, Dear Fanny, I met your Professor L last night. Why, Fanny, what beau ideal are you looking for? Like, so, you know, and then it's very soon thereafter. Also, her, her world, her circle, of uh, her comfort circle was shrinking. Her sister Mary had married a, an Englishman and moved to England. Her brother Tom was moving to uh, that's a variety of factors. And I think she finally decided that. And then Henry, of course, it took seven years. He wrote this book, Hyperion, where he, he bared his soul. I mean, that's a whole chapter in the book. 
I say the second dumbest thing he ever did, and I can tell I mean, you the dumbest thing he ever did in my modest view was insisting that Mary travel, the first wife travel to Europe with him. That was a mistake. I believe the second biggest, uh, dumbest thing he ever did was to write this book, Hyperion, and include uh, a section in there, which was basically a Romana clay, a, a, a bearing of the soul of his failed attempts to secure the hand of this woman he called F- uh, Mary Ashburton. He was Paul. He was the Paul Fleming character. She was Mary Ashburton. And that, when that came out, it infuriated, it infuriated. If whatever he expected to come of that, it just had the opposite effect. And <clears throat> she wrote actually what amounts to the best review of the book. I have it in just a letter to a friend. She just tears it to shreds. So she was not happy about that. Finally, they have an opportunity to talk about this some years later. And <clears throat> she's getting ready. You know, I mean, she's decided I'm not going to do it. I don't know what her decision was, but the, but the day she, the day she accepts his, his proposal of marriage, and the day they become a couple, he says it is part of our theory of life to never be separated. And really, they never were, which is why, you know, it's you talk about the love letters of Robert Bar- uh, Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, wonderful body of love letters or courtship letters, as they call them, or Wellesley call it. There's, there's no such body of correspondence between these two, because for seven years they weren't talking. And then when they were married, they were, ne- they were really never separated. So they're really only half a dozen letters and one or two, and one of which appears in my book for the first time because the family decided it was too personal. And that letter is where Fanny accepts his proposal of marriage. And I won't try to paraphrase it. You'll have to read the book. But basically, come to me, Henry, I am thine. You know, basically is what it is. And and he gets that on May the 8th, 1843. And he's so excited. He He walks the four miles from Cambridge to Boston hoping nothing will change your mind. He says he was like an arrow focused and going up to Beacon Street. And then he writes in his journal, Oh, day forever blessed that ushered in this Vita Nuova of happiness, quoting Dante. And he wrote that in his journal every day after that on the anniversary of her accepting his, his uh, proposal. And, and, then the, and then she is extraordinarily happy because not only is it a loving marriage, it's a productive marriage. She is contributing to his creative his creative corpus, and she does believe that his holy mission is to be that of poet. So once they resolve their differences, I mean, there there, have, there are a few mysteries that remain. Whatever the really uh, overarching issues were, I think it had a lot to do with that book. And uh, I mean, I think it took seven years. If he hadn't have written that, it might have taken two or three. But when that came out in 1839, forget about it. It took another four years. <laughs> But it was it's it's quite a story, and it was really I thought one of the very interesting parts of the book that hasn't really been told uh, to any uh, degree of uh, any depth before. What were Longfellow's views? He was he was an he was an ardent uh, 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 abolitionist, but but he didn't express it really. In his writing, he was not a poet of the moment. He really is a poet of, of reflection and looking back. Now, that said, one of the great criticisms, and I think it's really unfair, is that he didn't step forward. And, and, and as, as his friend Charles Sumner said, you are not going to get any war odes, called them war odes from Longfellow. And, Long, and Sumner is the great 
abolitionists, and these are the and their friendship is the is as close as you can get. I mean, these are <clears throat> two re, uh, intimately friendly men. I mean, I'm using intimate not in a, any other kind of sense, other than the fact they're very close, close, and they and they were uh, you know almost uh, soul brothers, really. Uh, and but Sumner understood that you that Longfellow is not going to write like Whittier these poems decrying slavery. But he did write in 1842. They were really urging him to come out and do something on slavery, and he did write nine poems on slavery. And they were published in 1842. The book is called On Slavery, and it predates by ten years. Uh, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe, 1852. And it, it, it doesn't really go out and, and eviscerate the slave owners as many had wanted. But if you read some of these poems, I have, I have, I discussed them in the book. Um, they're pretty tough. He has a poem called We Are the, Wit- the Witnesses. And he describes a ship, a sunken ship uh, in the Caribbean. And it's, there are skeletons in there shackled by chains and they are the witnesses. In another poem, he describes a, a fugitive slave on the run with flash marks on his on, on his back, being hunted down by hounds. I mean, this this is not t- tame stuff. And when it was published, a number of people were were astonished. They were shocked. Uh, his friend Hawthorne said he couldn't believe that that Longfellow had taken such a stance. It was a very a very uh, controversial kind of thing. And in fact, when an edition of his poetry was published in uh, Philadelphia. That publisher refused to include those poems in there. So it was controversial enough, and it took a stand, and it made no, it left no doubt in anyone's mind where he stood. Plus, he gave money to the Underground Railroad people. His, his journal has repeated entries of giving money to fugitive slaves, uh, people of, of, of color who, who needed help and assistance. So there's no question about, and his wife was absolutely a, an abolitionist, so so there's no question about where they stood on that and where they stood on that issue. Whether or not he could have been more forceful, more strident, uh, more vocal, uh, that's for others to judge. Uh, I, I think that Longfellow enjoyed a place, or I don't mean enjoy in the sense of enjoyed it like enjoying it, but he, he, he occupied is the better word. <clears throat> he occupied, occupied a place of trust with everyone. <clears throat> there's a very interesting story. There's the poem, The Children's Hour, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's, it's just, he, he describes his three little daughters. Now he has three daughters, and they come down, and they, they come down the stairs, the broad hall stair, and they jump into Papa's lap. And it's uh, Allegro and Edith with golden hair, and it's The Children's Hour. It's a beautiful poem, <clears throat> and, and it inspired a painting by Reed, and it hangs in the dining room. It's the three little girls. And it, and it also was uh, the publisher, uh, James Fields, made these little cards de visite out of it, little cards. And they were published by the thousands. There's a point to this. On the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863, found on the, on the battlefield is a little one of, is one of these cards de visite encased in a makeshift metal frame. It's a pendant. A soldier wore it into battle. Who was it? A Confederate soldier, soldier or a Union soldier? Nobody knows. And nobody will ever know. It was found lying loosely on the ground. It's now in the Maine Historical Society up in Portland, Maine, and his other, the other Longfellow house, because his 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 feelings, his his connection with with people, with everyday people, resonated. It crossed political lines, and he was respected by everyone. 
And, you know, he never really dedicated books to any individual, to his wife, except one, he, the seaside and the fireside. He has an opening poem of nine or 10 or 12 stanzas. It's dedicated to the reader, to the readers who have supported him, to the readers who have established a bond with him. And they look to him for comfort. They look to him as, as a friend, as almost a confessor. And I think he knew that and he respected that. And that mattered a lot to him to, to maintain and to uh, that special bond that he had with them. That's my own take on it. But, but I, I don't think you can question, question where he stood on the issue of slavery as some have. And I think it's unfortunate because that book really did, it predated, it predated Uncle Tom's Cabin by 10 years. And, and Uncle Tom's Cabin, according to Abraham Lincoln, it might be apocryphal, said so. And when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe in the White House, he says, so this is the little woman who started this war. She's short of stature, whether it's true or not. But that book, you know, had such a powerful effect. And it happened. But again, I'm, I'm actually hoping to planning to write an essay on this. But I think it, I think it's a very valid question. And, and it really deserves a, a fuller examination. But thank you for asking it, because I think it's a very valid, valid question. What is the background behind Jewish Cemetery of Newport. Okay. I was I thought you might be asking that question. <clears throat> so they the Longfellows, they you know, there was no air conditioning <laughs> back in the eighteen fifties and the eighteen sixties. And if you're a person of means, uh you you repaired to the seashore uh, or, or to the mountains, the Berkshires or to the Adirondacks. Uh, the Longfellows, for many years, uh, had a cottage on Nahant, which is off the coast of Boston. It's, it's actually almost almost like an island. It's a little slip of land that juts out into the into uh, north of Boston. But they also went to Newport, Rhode Island, which then, as now, is a, a, a kind of a peninsula, right? But a, and a haven for the for people of means and and where they where they vacationed. And, and in 1852, the Longfellows went and spent a summer on what was called the Cliff House. That, that house, particular house is no longer there. It's now occupied by a college, Salve Regina. And it was it's a short walk from downtown where the Jewish cemetery is and the, and the Jewish synagogue, the Toro Synagogue, which, by the way, was established. The Toro Synagogue was built in 1763, so it's during colonial times. And it is the oldest standing synagogue in North America. It continues and the and the and the, and the uh, cemetery there is the second oldest Jewish cemetery in North America. There's one older down on the lower tip of Manhattan. So in 1852, Longfellow is vacationing. 1852, he's now been married to, for nine years with Fanny and their <clears throat> Harriet, uh, not Harriet, uh, Julia Ward Howe and her husband Samuel Gridley Howe. Their house guest there, but Henry goes off on a walk on his own as he did. And he's walking downtown, and I don't know if you're familiar with Newport, Rhode Island. I am. It's not far from where I am now, or where I live. <clears throat> I've spent many time, a lot of time there. And he's walking by, and he sees these uh, gravestones behind a closed, uh, a locked fence, and it's still not open to it because there are only 39 gravestones. And he wonders what it is, and he can see some strange inscriptions on the stones, and and it's locked, and there's a caretaker. And a caretaker who lets him in and shows him around, and what he's looking at are the gravestones of the of this 
first uh, Jewish community in Rhode Island, which dates back to 1658. 1658. The, the colony of Rhode Island is only is established in 1639, only 20 years after the Roger Williams came from Massachusetts, where he's Catholic and he's not a, he's thrown out of Massachusetts, and, and so he's looking for a place to establish freedom of worship or whatever. And Rhode Island is the place where he goes, and they actually make it known that all faiths are welcome in Rhode Island, and especially in the little seaport town of Newport. And in 1658, a group of Sephardic Jews who had been Barbados and actually escaped the Inquisition in Spain from the 1500s, they establish a community in Newport. And it's a, it's a, a good-sized community. And, and But by the time Longfellow, uh, this is again 1658, when he comes and walks by the cemetery in 1852, the community is gone. Now, what's, what's happened is they were, lo- the, the Jewish community were not loyal to the British cause during the American Revolution. They were not Tory supporters. So they left during this, what, 1770s, 1760s, leading up to the American Revolution. So while the cemetery was still there and the, uh, the synagogue was still there, the synagogue was inactive. It's active again now. And so this gentleman tells Longfellow, I, I presume, about so much of this history. So that's the backstory. And then, then he writes this poem, The Jewish Cemetery <clears throat> at Newport. And, of course, he's very interested in it'll be a year or two after that. He goes to work on Hiawatha when he's talking also about a vanishing, what they saw as the vanishing race of Native Americans. He incorrectly assumes, of course, I guess, and there's one of the great stories about the final stanza of that poem is where he is. I'll read it to you because it's only four lines. But he, he writes, what once has been shall be no more. This is the big mistake he makes. The groaning earth and travail and in pain brings forth its races, but it does not restore. And the dead nations never rise again. Well, that's a huge mistake, isn't it? It's a hundred years. There is an Israel and there is uh, a thriving Israel. And he didn't foresee that, but at the time, but he, this is considered, by the way, one of the very first sympathetic treatments of Jews in America by an American writer. I don't think you can find anyone that uh, writes anything before him. And it's, it's, I, I, it's a pretty long poem. I, I encourage your listeners to, you can find it online. Just do a Google, the Jewish cemetery at Newport, read it. It's a fascinating poem. There's some fabulous, beautiful lines in there. He, he goes through the history, how strange it seems. These Hebrews in their graves, close by the street of this fair seaport town, silent beside the never silent waves, at rest in all this moving up and down. So he's walking in this uh, seaport town and he sees these, and he sees these inscriptions of Portuguese names and Hebrew names. And he wonders, what is this in New England? And of course he finds that history and he writes knowledgeably about Hebrew history in the poem. And uh, there, it, it actually inspired a rejoinder by Emma Lazarus, who wrote The Great Colossus. And she was not pleased with Longfellow's take on this for a variety of reasons. She writes another poem some years. Of course, she writes it after Longfellow's death in the 1880s and 30 or so years after this poem was written. And now there's a new wave of Jewish uh, immigrants coming to the United States and a new population. I think if he'd had that poem to think about 20 or 30 years later, it would have been different. But it's kind of, as we say, backstory, a fabulous backstory to it. And it's absolutely well-meaning and sympathetic. 
interpretation wise, well, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to be a prophet in a poem sometimes, you know, but uh, the final, I, I had a wonderful interview with Harold Bloom, a great, great critic who died a couple of years ago for this book. And, and uh, he loved this poem. And he said, with the single exception, of course, of that final stanza, it's a beautiful poem. And I agree. And uh, I really strongly urge your, your viewers to Absolutely. give it a look. It won't take that long to read it. Very easy to find it. Well, well I think we'll put it up on the uh, the website. That would be a. Uh, you should. And, and I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll uh, provoke some discussion. Yep. Yep. But just remember, remember, he's a 19th century man. This is the middle of the 19th century. Right. And, you know, people have issues with his take on uh, Native Americans and Hiawatha, you know, I mean, with a vanishing species. And but 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 his intentions were good. He based it on solid research, facts, facts, uh, 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 ethnographic research. And uh, you can you can uh, second guess you can second guess uh, content, but very you can't. But but the intention, I think, was always always noble. Uh, in conclusion, because we can go on forever here, um, what should can people learn today, 2021? What should they take from Longfellow and the poetry? Well, is poetry dead? Of course it's not, you know. Uh, I, I guess... What going back to your earlier question, your first question, what what prompted me to write the book was that I was disappointed that I, that, that Longfellow had not only been had I mean okay he's fallen out of favor nothing is forever you know uh, fame and celebrity are slippery slopes but he didn't deserve to be tossed out of the canon he's too good of a poet and no less a, an authority than the late Daniel Aaron. Uh, great American studies teacher at Harvard. He said Longfellow is much too good a poet, to, uh, and America does not have that rich a literary tradition to to uh, to forget and to and to disown a poet as good as Longfellow. So I think number one, he may is he the greatest poem American poet to come out of the nineteenth century. I'm not making that claim, but he's an important poet. Is he Emily Dickinson? He's not. Is he Walt Whitman? No. Is he is he uh, Emerson? No. But he's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's 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 a, a, a canonical writer, and he wrote some really marvelous things that really speak to people, that resonate with people. He talks about values, and his poetry is beautiful. It's melodious. I mean, you look at some of the it's stated. You know, he writes in rhyme. One of the one of the raps against him issued by the modernists, and I think. Is that he was too accessible? I mean, it's, it's, it's this that this should be a crime that you should write poetry that people can can understand and enjoy easily. You know, uh, he he, uh, Jill Lepore, the critic Jill Lepore, uh, she wrote a piece once on the 150th anniversary of Paul Revere's ride, and she quoted a letter that Longfellow once received from a eight or nine year old girl in Ohio, and she said, "Dear Mister Longfellow, I've memorized this poem and that poem. I love your work." And, uh, and, you know, I would, some comments. She just wanted to tell him how much she loved his work and she memorized it. And Jill Lepore said, well, this is the problem as far as the modernists, because she said to be read and memorized by children, by children is the sweet sloppy kiss of death. She said, 
this was this this was his sin, I guess, is to be almost too accessible, to be loved, to be beloved as much by children as he was by adults. But you read what Teddy Roosevelt wrote about. He said, "Don't give up on Longfellow." This is when, when he could see what was happening as this wave of uh, of um, opposition to his poetry. I don't know why it was being it was coming for. He said, "Please don't give up on him too soon. He's too good." And and I guess all I can say, my my message is, give him a chance. It's easy. It's this stuff is available. There's a wonderful volume by the from the Library of America. It's a good collection selection of his poetry. Anything you want to read can be found online. It's all public domain. Just do a Google. I mean, you you can you can read any or all of his poetry, and some things you'll like, and some things you won't. But you might surprise yourself. Robert Frost, who was a great, great, great admirer of Longfellow, he gave he gave a, I talk about it in the book. This was in the 1930s or so, and he was giving a presentation to some students at Bryn Mawr in Philadelphia. And he said, I want to share with you some poems of, of, a, of a poet I just discovered, just ran across. And he read one poem, and they loved it. And he read two, the second poem, and they loved that even more. And they, he read three. Then they clamored to know who they were listening to. And he said, you've been listening to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You know, I said, oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, we had no idea he was that good and that, that enjoyable. So I, I guess my my message is give him a chance and don't reject him all that all that soon. He's too important a writer and too good a writer and too decent a person. So it's all pluses as far as I'm concerned. This this has been fascinating again. The Cross of Snow by Nicholas Fazbanes, um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, urge everyone to um, go on Amazon or wherever else you can purchase it. And uh, thank. You. Thank you very much for your time. This was really just a, a thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great fun. Thank you. Thank you.